Good morning, everyone. Today's reading, today's reading is from Romans 5, verse 1 to 11. For those in the Bibles in the pews, it's on page 1130, or you can find it on your devices. Now, if you're somebody who um, has never, ever done anything wrong in their life and has never sinned, you may not find this passage particularly interesting. But if, like the rest of us, you've made a few mistakes in life and you're not perfect... I think you might find this quite inspirational and, in fact, very comforting. Romans 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings, because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has given this to us. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though a good person might sometimes possibly dare to die for a good person. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if... While we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. How much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Amen. Uh, good morning, everyone. Uh, in the interests of transparency, I think I need to begin this morning with a bit of a confession. I've got a history with this passage. Romans 5 uh, is easily one of my most cherished parts of all the scripture. Funnily enough, I didn't actually ask to preach on this today. It's just the way that it happened. But my history with Romans 5 begins all the way back in year 11 which is not that all long ago. I'd gone on a leadership camp with Crusaders, uh, which was training us on how to, how to teach and unpack the Bible. And it was actually Romans 5, 1 to 11, which was the passage we were using to practice on that week. Now, I would love to say I was able to, to go and, and go through my, my copious notes from that week and bring them to bear on the passage today, but unfortunately, Unfortunately, I didn't get a whole lot done that week. You see, it was on that camp that I met a girl. We'll have been married 14 years in December. Uh, and actually, in tribute um, to where we first met to that camp, we actually decided to have Romans 5 read and preached on at our wedding, which was lovely. Now, that is proof that a lot can happen in 14 years. <laughs> Some of you might know this, I'm actually also the weddings minister here at St. Matthew's and uh, to this day, whenever I'm taking a couple through wedding prep, 
which is always fun. Um, One of the passages we'll work through is Romans 5. And whilst it's not kind of your typical wedding passage, it's not a 1 Corinthians 13, Romans 5, 1 to 11 is very relational. Did you notice that as we went through it? Like it's, it's totally relational, particularly I think where it comes to the issue of conflict in relationships. In fact, that is the week when I pull it out, the week on conflict resolution, which is always a fun session with our couples. But as we work through it together this morning, I just want to encourage you, take note of the relational dimension that's going on in this passage, because it really does mark uh, a bit of a shift from where we've been in Romans so far. This chapter, chapter 5, begins a new section in the letter. Um, Paul begins, take a look with me, verse 1, he says, Therefore, since we've been justified through faith. Justified through faith. It's a very good summary, actually, of everything Paul's been saying up to this point, Romans 1 to 4. We all need to be made right with God, he's told us, and the only way we can do that is by faith. That's Romans 1 to 4, right? Paul's emphasis has been on faith. But then we come to Romans 5, and Paul's like, therefore, as in, because of all that, here's something new. And for the next four chapters, so Romans 5 through 8, Paul's emphasis turns from focusing on faith to focusing on life. Okay, so now I'm justified by God. Well, what does that actually mean for right now? Like, what... What does that mean for life on the ground level? What's next, Paul? What's next? That's the section we're moving into today. And for the opening part of this new section, Paul seems to be addressing a particular pastoral concern. It's all well and good, Paul, for you to tell me that I'm justified before God now, but what about on that final day, whenever it comes? You know, how can I know now that I'll be saved then? That's the pastoral question. I wonder if you've ever wondered that yourself before. Maybe not put it exactly in that way, but you might ask that kind of question in those times when your experience of life, when the way that you're kind of feeling about things, when that, you look at it and it seems to be suggesting something else perhaps. How can I know that I'm still okay with God? On that final day of judgment, that God's actually going to recognize me as His own. How can I know that? Does that resonate with you at all? Because I've got to tell you, as, as, as the youth minister here for five years, that was a very common question amongst our young people. How can I be confident that I am right with God? How can I know now that I'll be saved then? Well, Romans 5, 1 to 11, Paul cooks up a great answer to that question. And he kind of serves it to us in three main courses. We get peace, we get hope, we get love, one after the other. We'll kind of trace that through. But, but Paul's addressing that question. How can I know now that I'll be saved then, he points to these, these three things. He, has, he says we have a peace that we can have, there's a hope that we can hold, and both of those kind of rest on a love that God has demonstrated. Peace, hope, love. Three courses to a great meal. Let's tuck into it. Verse 1, what does Paul say? Read with me. 
Therefore, since we've been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace with God, Paul says. He puts it in another way, if you jump through to verse 10, where he says, we were reconciled to Him. We were reconciled to Him. Those two ideas are are quite similar, actually. Peace and reconciliation. And the thing I want you to notice, firstly, about those two words in our passage this morning is that they're relational words. They're relational things, aren't they? Peace and reconciliation. And Paul's been talking for the last four chapters about justification, being justified. If you've been with us, you'll know we've, we've, we've talked about that at length because that's what Paul does. And justification is a legal term, isn't it? It's talking about our legal status, having been kind of declared innocent, legally innocent, exonerated before the throne of God. But now Paul's moving from the legal to the relational. Given this new legal status that you have, Paul says, you've now got a new relational status as well with God. You've got peace with Him. I mean, just, just think about it for yourself a moment. We, we all know what it's like to not be at peace with someone. I'm not just talking about the kind of open hostility, but under the surface even, you know? Like, there'll be times where, where you've got conflict, you've got an issue with someone, and they won't even know, because you'll kind of be holding it to yourself and stewing about it. Or, flip it around, there'll be times where you feel like someone's got an issue with you. You ever felt that before? It's not a nice feeling, isn't it? Where you kind of, this, this sense of unease kind of settles upon you where it's like something's not right. And, and it can kind of take your thoughts captive if you're not careful. I don't know if you've ever had that before and you just, you know, you'll play the conversation over in your head again and again or the interaction trying to work out what did I do or what did I say or what's the problem. And, and you kind of like second guess and question and worry at its worst, I don't know if, if you've ever experienced this before, I know I have, but actually it can affect your sleep, you know, like you'll wake up in the middle of the night and you've got a problem with a friend or a co-worker or a family member, you wake up in the middle of the night and, it's, and that conflict like immediately comes to, you, to mind. You had that before and then of course when that happens, you're not going to go back to sleep anytime soon. It's awful, it's awful. But here is the sweet and beautiful truth of Romans 5. There is no reason for us to feel like that when it comes to God. There's no lingering questions. There's nothing to second guess or wonder about or worry about. If you've been justified by faith, Paul says, you now have peace with God. It's a, it's a deep sleep kind of peace. In the Old Testament, the word for peace is shalom. You might have heard that before, shalom. And it means far more than, than just the absence of conflict. That's probably what you first think of, right, when we talk about peace, the absence of conflict. But the Bible, when it uses the word shalom, peace, it's much more, it's much more than that. In fact, it's connected to the, to, to, to the idea of wholeness, completeness, it's when something's been restored to its right order, to its right place, like harmony. That's kind of what it's picking up. 
And it's a bit like actually how I felt walking back into my house this week. We've been out of our house the last three weeks as it's been repainted. Everything inside, all the interiors have been repainted. And uh, you walk in for the first time and like the difference it makes is in, it's hard to describe. But beforehand, you know, some of the walls, the, the colours weren't matching, they weren't the same. Uh, there were sections where, where the paint was starting to flake off. Um, the, door, the door frames had been scratched and dented from, you know, years of shifting furniture in and out. And there were holes on the walls from, from, from hangings past. Uh, Half-torn stickers <laughs> in the kids' rooms, you know. Those little, like, stars, glow-in-the-dark stars on the roof that had kind of been pulled off. Fingerprints. It's just, you know, general wear and tear stuff. But, man, coming back into it this week completely repainted everything like the colors are matching the flaking's been fixed the holes are filled the dents are gone right it's shalom it's shalom completeness knowing our boys it's not going to stay that way for very long but for this week at least it's shalom it's shalom now paul's saying that's what we have with god relationally That's what we have with God. What was once chipped and dented and flaking is now being restored to wholeness. Because you see, God doesn't just forgive you. Did you know that? He doesn't just forgive you. He he makes peace with you. He welcomes you in. Do Do you feel that? That deep sleep kind of peace with God where there's there's no need to worry. There's no need to second guess or to wonder about where you might stand with him today. Is that how you feel? Because that's what he offers us. That's what he offers us. And you know, here's the interesting thing about peace with God. It, it isn't actually just a feeling that we have, right? A sense of peace. The peace we have with God, it's also a perspective. It's a perspective. It, it, it ends up shaping the way that we see things. Our life our circumstances, especially, actually, it, it, it fuels the hope that we have in the future. And, and hope is actually where, where Paul moves, serves up for his second course, hope. See, at the end of verse 2, take a look with me in your Bibles in front of you, he says, and we boast in the hope of the glory of God. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Which really means kind of fixing our eyes on the glory that is to come, the glory that's waiting for us on that day when we enter into God's glory. See, peace with God means that that the end is now bright. It's now bright. And so the peace we have actually gives birth to hope. It shapes our perspective and transforms the way that we see the future. Because if God's no longer got an issue with you, if He's no longer against you, What have you got to worry about on that final day? That's why we can have hope. Peace with God isn't just a feeling, it's a perspective. And it it completely and utterly transforms the way we respond to everything, including the way we respond to suffering. Did you notice there at the start of verse 3, just the bonkers statement that Paul makes? What does he say? Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings. 
because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. The word for glory there that he uses can also mean boast, which is what he's used, the exact same word that he used in the previous verse, and it can also mean rejoice. Rejoice in our sufferings. Those two, those two things don't often get paired together, do they? Joy and suffering, and yet Paul puts them smack bang together. He says, yeah, they do. You think if anything is going to disturb the peace we now have with God, it would be suffering, right? Tough times. Not so, Paul says. In fact, the ultimate peace we now enjoy with God, it actually puts our suffering into perspective. And so rather than derail our faith, Paul's saying suffering actually does the opposite. Much like how a muscle grows stronger when the load is heavy, you know, and as it works itself out. So our walk with God, actually, it grows and develops and matures when we go through seasons of suffering. Take Ross, for instance. You might have met Ross and Jody. They come here at 10 a.m. Um, I've gotten to know him a little bit over the last little while. For, for the last six months, Ross has been training for an event that actually, as it happens, kicks off today. It's already started. The Ironman Asia Pacific Championship up in Cairns. Do you know how brutal an Ironman event is? It's, 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 it's crazy. You, you begin with a 3.8-kilometer swim. He would have done that bit by now. You follow it up with 180 kilometers on a bike, and you finish it off for good measure by running a marathon. 42 kilometers. There's no break. There's no stopping. It's one after the other. That is nuts. <laughs> Absolutely nuts. Ross started the race at uh, 7.40 this morning, he told me. And uh, so he would be into the bike section now. And he's going to continue to be going until about 9 o'clock tonight. He said that would be a good time, 13 hours or so. Imagine for a moment the kind of training he must have put himself through in order to be doing that right now. The hundreds of hours in the pool, on the road, in the gym. It, like, obviously, it's self-inflicted. He didn't have to do it. But you can't deny the fact that he would, have, he would have been putting his body through some kind of suffering in order to do that. And, in fact, he'd be going, his body would be going through a great deal of suffering right now throughout the rest of this day but all of those hours right the pain the sweat the the, the blood the tears it wasn't for nothing it wasn't for nothing each stroke each step each rep all of it was actually accomplishing something it was producing something it was equipping him and that's kind of how Paul talks about our suffering in verses 3 and 4. There's some striking things about it, in fact. And there's nothing nice about suffering. It's always awful. Always. And it's usually tragic. And yet, Paul says we can have joy because as awful and tragic as it may be, it also offers us an opportunity. It actually offers to do something within us like the pain of training for the Iron Man, our suffering is not for nothing. It actually produces stuff within us. You see, it's tough times 
that exercise the muscles of our faith. It's tough times that do that. Not good times, not easy times, not pleasant times, tough times that exercise the muscles of our faith. It's never pleasant or enjoyable, but then, you know, who promised you the Christian life was going to be pleasant? It's never nice, and yet suffering develops perseverance, Paul says. Perseverance, that, that resolve and that willingness to hang in there when the going gets tough. And it also strengthens your grip on God, doesn't it? As you lean in to Him in trust and dependence, your grip gets stronger on Him. Paul calls that character. Character. And suffering also has a knack for just sharpening your focus on the finish, the finish line, doesn't it? Of seeing it ahead and just knowing that it's coming and pushing on for it. That's hope. That's hope. And when you think about it for, for a moment, these three things, perseverance, character, hope, where else are we going to develop these godly characteristics if it's not through exercising the muscles of our faith through seasons of suffering? That's where it's going to happen. If you are in a season yourself right now, and I know there are people here who are, May this period of pain, however long it lasts, may it produce in you that steely resolve to persevere and to hold fast. May it grow in you a depth and a maturity of faithful character and may the peace of God just lead you to look past the pain of now to the hope of what's to come. See, this is a hope Paul tells us there in verse 5, take a look. He tells us that this hope will not put us to shame. It's not going to fail, in other words. It's not going to be proved to be false at the end. It's certain, Paul says. This hope is certain. It's as certain as the peace that we now have with God, in fact. And the certainty of both these two things, the peace we have and the hope we hold, the certainty of these two things actually rest on the powerful and profound foundation of God's love for us which is where Paul's third and final course takes us. Take a quick look with me at, from verse 6 through to verse 10. Paul calls us some things. I just want you to notice. Verse 6, he calls us powerless, and then he calls us ungodly. Verse 8, what does he call us? While well, we were still sinners, Paul says. And then in verse 10, what does he say? We were God's enemies. Four different ways. Powerless, ungodly, sinners, enemies. What is Paul trying to do by laboring this point? He's trying to do something profound. Remember the pastoral question is he's looking to answer, right? How can I know now that I'll be saved then? Well, Paul says it's because God was willing to die for you when you were at your worst. That's what Paul's saying. There's actually no greater demonstration of God's love for you than that when you were at your worst, He still loved you. When you were your least lovable, when your heart was turned against Him, when you were running as far from Him as you could get, God's love for you remained. When you were all of those things that Paul says, powerless, ungodly, sinners, enemies, 
when you're all of those things, that's when He came after you. That's when He came down for you. That's when He allowed Himself to be beaten and bloodied and broken for you, for His enemy. How can I know now that I'll be saved then? That's how you know. That's how you know. J.I. Packer puts it like this. He says, There is tremendous relief in knowing that God's love to me is utterly realistic, based at every point on prior knowledge of the worst about me, so that no discovery can disillusion him about me. Christ died for you at your worst. Do you know why that's such good news, friends? If he is willing to take me at my worst, then there's nothing more he can learn about me that he doesn't already know, that he hasn't already seen. He's aware of it all, and he still wants me. He still died for me. You know, that's actually why we can be confident that we have a peace now with God that lasts. That's why Paul can say that our hope is certain, that it's not going to put us to shame. Because God's already gone and done the hardest thing. The hardest thing. He's given up his life to save his enemies and it's worked. We're now at peace. It's radical reconciliation. Unlike anything we've ever seen before. A couple of years back, I remember reading a news article uh, about the trial of Amber Geiger, who was a white policewoman in Texas, charged with the murder of a 26-year-old black man named Botham Jean back in 2019, 2018, 2019. At the time, they were living in the same apartment block in Texas. Then late one night after a 14-hour shift, Amber came home but mistakenly entered Botham's apartment thinking it was her own. He was just sitting on the couch eating ice cream, unarmed, But she got such a shock, she pulled out her weapon and she fatally shot him. What a tragedy on all fronts for everyone involved. She was found guilty of murder, sentenced 10 years in prison. Now before the trial concluded, Botham's 18-year-old brother Brant was given the chance to take the stand and to give a victim impact statement. What do you, what do you say in that position? What, what do you say to the person that's just torn your family apart and murdered your brother? What would you say? Here's what Brant said. I forgive you. And I know if you go to God and ask Him, He will forgive you. I'm not going to say that I hope you rot and die. I love you. And then this happened. I want the best for you. Because I know that's that's exactly what both of them would want you to do. And the best would be give your life to Christ. I'm not going to say anything else. I think giving your life to Christ would be the best 
thing that Bozo would want you to do. Again, I love you as a person. And I don't wish anything bad on you. I don't know if this is possible, but can, can I give her a hug, please? Please? that's radical reconciliation and it's modelled off the radical reconciliation that we've been shown I love the fact that he doesn't just forgive her but he embraces her he makes peace with her that's what God's done for you and I enemy love Christ died for you at your worst. You know what that says about his love? It means that he doesn't love you for your utility, for what you could do for him, for your usefulness. It means that he doesn't love you for your obedience, because you're such a good listener and you follow his every command. I mean, he loves it when you do. That's not why he loves you. God doesn't love you because you're good. He doesn't love you because you've got potential. He doesn't love you because of anything you've done for Him, anything you've given to Him, or anything He hopes you might do for Him. See, a God is willing to come after you at your lowest, when you're the worst version of yourself, that's not a God who needs anything from you. He doesn't need you. But he wants you. He wants you. He wants you despite who you were, despite being his enemy, despite being a powerless, ungodly sinner, despite being wholly unworthy of his love, God offers it to us. Because he wants to be reconciled with you. He wants peace with you. Shalom. Friends, is there any greater incentive to love and worship this God of ours than that. Because there is no greater assurance that our peace is real and our hope is certain than this right here. God demonstrates his own love for us in this while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. Let's pray. Father God, it's hard to know how to properly respond to the way you've outpoured your love upon us in your Son, Jesus Christ. Those who did not deserve it, and yet you gave it to us anyway. Lord God, we just pray that the profoundness of this truth, the sweetness of this grace, and of your love that it might rest upon us this morning and that it may 
may resound in praise and thanksgiving for everything that you are and for everything that you've done for us. Give us joy, Lord. Give us joy to celebrate you and to never stop being thankful for everything you've done. Amen.